Thank you for joining us today for this life-changing message from River of Life. If you are ever in our area, we would love for you to join us. For more information, visit us at rolcrawfordville.com. That's rolcrawfordville.com. Or download our app in the App Store under ROL Crawfordville. Now, let's join Derek Gray as he teaches from the Word of God. All right, we are, uh, welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. This is something we do here at River of Life. Every uh, Wednesday night, we dedicate it to one thing and one thing only, and that is the study of God's uh, Word. And uh, we finished up, uh, if you're visiting here tonight, we've finished up a, a, over a year-long study in the Sermon on the Mount, and we're kind of filling some time uh, around the holidays and Thanksgiving and Christmas and we're doing a, a short study, uh, four weeks, five weeks at the most, probably four weeks, on the Bible. And uh, there are really three things that we're looking at. Now, uh, the, the first lesson, uh, part one, we looked at how you got your English Bible. So we just went back through history and looked at the history of the Bible and translations and how we got... Uh, the English Bible that we have in our hands today. And then last week, or the last time we were together, we took a break last week for Thanksgiving, uh, we started looking at why you can trust your Bible, and we're going to talk more about that tonight. And then next week, we're going to get to what I really want to talk about, and that is Bible uh, translations, and what is the best Bible translation uh, for uh, you. And we'll get to that uh, next week. But tonight, we're going to fin- uh, continue... Uh, with the second part uh, of our study, looking at why you can trust your uh, Bible. Now, what we saw a couple weeks ago when we were together is that the Bible, as we all know, is an ancient uh, document. The, uh, uh, the, the Old Testament goes back to somewhere around 1400 uh, B.C. The New Testament, of course, uh, all compiled around 100 A.D., but we're talking about 2,000, 3,000 uh, years. And because the Bible is an ancient document, there are certain ways that it can be tested, just like any ancient document, to determine its authenticity, its reliability, um, and its accuracy. Now, two weeks ago, we looked at the first test, and I mentioned there were three of them. We're going to look at the other two tonight. And the first test we looked at was what's called the bibliographical test. And what we do is we go, scholars can go back and they can look at all the manuscript copies and all the evidence that we have uh, down through time to determine, do we have in our hands today what the apostles uh, wrote down? And the answer to that is categorically yes. Uh, it is, there, there, there is absolutely no doubt that we have, uh, some scholars say 98, 99% uh, with surety, uh, what was written down by the original uh, apostles and disciples of Jesus. There are certainly some things that scholars still argue about, but you remember we, a couple weeks ago we said there's very few of those things, and none of those things affect any of our doctrine uh, whatsoever. Uh, B.P. Warfield said this, if we compare the present state of the New Testament text with that of any other ancient writing, we must declare it to be marvelously correct. It is unrivaled among ancient writings in the purity of its text. It turns out the irony of the whole thing is that the very thing that skeptics look at to try to discredit the Bible and say, well, the Bible's been copied so many times, it's that very thing 
the fact that there are so many copies that enables us to, to actually makes it possible to have confidence in its accuracy. So if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, I would, uh, I would strongly urge you to go back and, and listen to that podcast. So as we come here tonight, we are, like I said, we are, the, the bibliographical test tells us that the Bible we have in our hands today is essentially what was recorded by the original apostles. Now, that doesn't make it true. They could have made it all up and wrote it down, and we could have word for word what they wrote down and it, and it not be true. So all we know is that, yes, we have what the apostles wrote down. We don't know whether it's credible. That To understand that or to determine that, we need to look at two other uh, tests. Now, the first one we're going to look at tonight is called the internal evidence test. Now, this is very uh, simple. What this means is that you open the Bible, and you look at it, and you read it, and does what you find inside of it confirm or deny its accuracy, its reliability, and its authenticity? It's very simple. Just you open it, and you begin to read it. And does what jump, you know, what jumps out at you off the page, uh, the things that it says? Are there contradictions? Are there things that it's saying that are against known scientific facts and things like that? And you just decide, is it reliable? Is it accurate? Is it authentic? Now, I, I gotta be honest with you. I got a lot of stuff to cover and I could, we could talk about this for days. I mean, uh, uh, people have written books on these subjects. So I've only got about, 40, 45 minutes, so we got to go through this stuff pretty quick. But I want to look at a couple of areas from inside the Bible. And the first area that I want to look at is science. And before I get to the Bible, I want to give you a couple of statements. This is out of the Hindu scriptures. So the the Hindus have a Bible. They have what they call their sacred or holy scriptures. And this is a couple of statements. I'll read another one in a little bit. These are a couple of statements from their Bible. It says, The moon is 50,000 leagues higher than the sun and shines by its own light. Night is caused by the sun setting behind a huge mountain several thousand feet high located in the center of the earth. Now, you and I need to understand that if the Bible said something like that, it would be discredited immediately. If the Bible had even one statement in it that went against or contradicted known scientific facts about the natural world or the natural state of the universe, anything like that, the Bible would just be discredited. It would have no credit whatsoever, but there isn't any. There's not one statement you can find in the Bible that contradicts known facts, natural facts about the state of the world. Now, let me just give you a few things. I want to, I'm going to go through these very quickly and uh, I want to start with the book of Job because, as I've mentioned multiple times here, the book most scholars consider Job to be the oldest book in the Bible. It's not the first book in the Bible, but if you go in and you and you look at it and 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 look at what's going on and the culture and things like that, it probably is around the time of Abraham. Uh, it's it's written in that time range, so it's around 1900 to 1700 BC. So I want to start there. Here's a few things that it says about the world the heavens or the universe. Job's 26.7 says, He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. You see, the, the Bible doesn't say the earth is, is, is sitting on pedestals or the earth is uh, held up by giant elephants or anything like that. It says He hangs the earth on nothing. By the way, that was discovered 
quote, discovered by Copernicus in 1475. Job 28.5 says, Food is grown on the earth above, but down below the earth is melted as by fire. Now, we know today that scientists tell us that if you drill down into the core of the earth, that the very core of the earth is all just molten rock or molten lava. But that wasn't discovered until 1936. But Job told us about it some 3,000, almost 4,000 years ago. Job 38, 16, have you entered into the springs of the sea? or walked into the recesses of the deep. Science discovers in the 1970s that if you go out in the oceans and the seas, there's these huge springs out there that are just, uh, just. I mean, and nobody ever knew about them until the 1970s, except if they would have just read the Bible. Job 36, 27 through 28, he draws up the drops of water. They distill his mist in rain, which the sky pours down and drops on mankind abundantly. Here Job is talking about the hydrologic cycle where water uh, evaporates, goes up into the clouds, comes back together, and falls as rain. Science discovered that in 1580 A.D., but Job already knew about it in the Bible some 4,000 years ago. Genesis 17:12. it says, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male child in your generations. Now, we all know that you know, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He says, here's a sign of the covenant. Every male child you have is going to be circumcised on the eighth day. Now, you ever wonder why eight? Why not seven? Why not the first day? Why not the 40th day? What is there about the eighth day? Well, modern medical researchers have discovered that in the blood there are two main uh, clotting agents or clotting factors. One is called vitamin K. And the other is, a, a, I don't know if I can pronounce it, prothrombin. Um, both of these facilitate clotting, and they facilitate uh, healing and, and reduce the chance of infection. Does anybody want to guess that in a male baby, the, that those two, uh, those two agents reach their highest level in a male at what day? On the eighth day. That's, that's, I mean, that's medical science. In fact, any circumcision, if your child is circumcised at the hospital, they have to give them an injection of vitamin K because it hasn't built up in their body yet. It doesn't build up until 110% of normal on the eighth day. Genesis 127, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. DNA. Scientists have tracked DNA, and they've done these big studies, and you can go out and read about it in the news, and they finally confirm what the Bible's been saying all along, that if you track everybody's DNA back, it all goes back to one couple. Now, they'll argue about who that couple is and where they came from and all this, but there's no doubt that we are all uh, long-lost brothers and sisters. Psalms 8, 6 through 8. You've made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. That was written around 1000 B.C. Uh, in the 18, in 1850s, there's a guy by the name of Matthew Morey. Uh, he was a naval guy, and he was also a Christian, and he read the Bible, and he thought, well... If the Bible says there are paths in the sea, then they must be there. And so he conducted a series of experiments and uh, discovered what we now know today 
as the continental currents, that out there in the oceans there are consistent currents that flow very consistently around the world. He, studied, uh, he discovered that in 1855 by just believing what the Bible said. Ecclesiastes 1.6 says, The wind goes toward the south, it turns around to the north, it whirls around continually, and the wind returns on its circuits. That was written... Uh, uh, around 970 to 930 B.C., uh, it was discovered in the 1800s that the winds in do have a, indeed have a circuit. In the northern hemisphere, they go clockwise. In the southern hemisphere, they turn around and go counterclockwise. But that's, I mean, that's a known scientific fact today discovered in the 1800s. Isaiah 40:22. it is he who sits above the circle of the earth, its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. The Bible's never taught that the world is flat. The Bible's never taught anything like that. It's consistently note says that it's a circle or a globe. It hangs on nothing. The heavens are stretched out. If you know anything about the Big Bang, they'll tell you that the universe is, is, is basically stretching out or moving away from us. I mean, all they had to do was read the Bible. Jeremiah 33, 22. I will make the descendants of David my servant and the Levites who minister before me as countless as the stars in the sky. I brought this one back up uh, 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 however long ago it was when we did our relevant truth study. I thought this was interesting. Did you know on a perfectly clear night, if all things were just, you know, all the uh, ambient light and everything were taken away, and you were very careful, you can count the stars in the sky. Scientists tell us you can count 4,458 that are that you can see with the naked eye. And and the the funny thing would be if even back then let's just say you know somebody might have been sitting there reading this and saying you know there's a lot of stars up there but they're not countless, right? I mean there's a lot of them and they're not easy to count but you can count them. And of course that was before things like the Hubble telescope and things like that. Scientists estimate today there are 300 billion stars in the Milky Way, 70 billion trillion in the universe, and those are just, and they're finding more every day. The further they look, the more stars they find. They are indeed countless. They are indeed countless. They're, they are, you, they cannot be uh, counted. Now, before I go any further, I need to hit something because as I was as I was studying this and kind of putting this together, I thought, well, what about what about this? I want to go back and read another Hindu uh, passage. This is out of the Hindu scriptures. It says, the world is flat and triangular, and it's composed of seven stages, one of honey, another of sugar, a third of butter, and another of wine. And the whole mass is borne on the heads of countless elephants, which in shaking produce earthquakes. Now, that, if you had to describe that, you'd say that's fantastical, it's ridiculous, words like that, right? But let's be honest, the Bible has some things that some people would describe as fantastical and ridiculous. For example, in Genesis, we find a woman that's turned completely into salt. We have a sea that parts and, and literally lets a million people walk right through the middle of it. We, in, in 2 Kings 6, we have an axe head that floats. In Joshua 10, we have the sun sand steel. In Jonah, we have a, a man who lives inside the belly of a fish for three days. You can come on. We got three men survive a fiery furnace, which, by the way, killed the men that put them in there. It was that hot. 
In Numbers 22, we've got a talking donkey. In Luke 1, we've got a virgin birth. We've got a man that walks on water, that heals paralytics, that turns water into wine and comes back to life. Now, here's my question. What's the difference? What's the difference between these things in the Bible that are hard to believe and the things in the Hindu scriptures? Well, there is a huge, huge difference. Let me go back. Do you understand what they're saying here? They're saying this is how things are. In the natural world, they're saying the moon is higher than the sun and shines of its own light. That there's a big mountain in the middle of the earth that blocks out the, 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 the sun and that's what causes night. Or, everybody with me? They're saying this is how things are in the natural world. Well, we all know that's ridiculous. But you see, this isn't saying that. The Bible doesn't say that we're made of salt. It just says that God stepped in one time and turned somebody into salt. You see the difference? The Bible doesn't say that axe heads naturally float. It just says that God one time stepped into the natural and turned it into the supernatural. It doesn't say that the sun stands still all the time. It just says God did it one time. It doesn't say men can naturally live inside a fish. It just says God did it one time. Same thing with the talking donkey. It doesn't say animals can talk. It just says one time God said, I'm going to do this thing. It doesn't say virgins can give birth. It just says one time. See, that's the difference is, is when it, you, you don't read anything in the Bible that says the natural state of the world is like this, that's not exactly right. But the Bible does turn around and says when God wants to step in, he steps in. And he can do anything. It's, I am reminded of this statement of the Apostle Paul in Acts 26.8, talking to King Agrippa. He says, why does it seem incredible to any of you that God raises the dead? Why should it seem incredible to any of us that if God wants to turn a woman into salt, he can do it? Or make an axe head float, he can do it. Are you with me? Do you see the difference? I think that's very important. Now, you can believe that or not. You can believe that God does miracles or don't do miracles. But it's very, very different what the Bible says God does in a miraculous way than what the state of the world is in a natural way. By the way, I was reading through this. It's really interesting. I was thinking the other night, you know, there's one one thing on that list that nobody believes, and that's the virgin birth. Nobody believes that. And yet, and yet, scientists today can cause a woman to give a birth who's never known a man. And we, we, we look at that and say, wow, look at science. And we look at that and say, that's a lie. What did Paul say? Why does it seem incredible to any of you that God can raise the dead? He can do whatever he wants to do. Now, here's the other thing we want to look at. Remember, we're looking at the internal evidence test. So we open the Bible, and we look at it, and we read it. And so we don't see anything there that's fantastical or anything like that. We just see the miracles of God. The other thing we want to look at is the testimony of the people that wrote it. Did they write evasively? As if they had something to hide? Or did they write as if they were lovers of truth? When you read the Bible and you, and you look at things, are they writing as if they're making up a story? Or are they writing as if they are adamant about putting down 
uh, the truth. Well, let's look at a few of those. First of all, the account, we need to remember the account of the life and teaching of Jesus is given by people who are either eyewitnesses or by people who uh, were told themselves by eyewitnesses. Let me give you a few examples. Luke chapter 1, Luke says this, "...inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us." So Luke said, I didn't see it, but they told me about it. Then you've got John, of course, who says, "...that which we have seen," this is the Apostle John, "...that which we have seen and heard." And see, these men are saying, listen to what Peter says, "...we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty." Look, you got to decide, do you believe that man? I mean, that's what you got to decide. Do you believe these men are telling the truth? I said it, I think, a couple weeks ago. I believe in the resurrection of Jesus, not because my parents told me, not because the preacher told me. I believe it because I believe those men. They wrote and lived as if they had actually experienced what they said that they experienced. Note that when they write, they're very specific about times, date, and places. I was watching some uh, show not too long ago about... Uh, interviewing like criminals and stuff. And the reason, you ever notice when they come back to a criminal, they ask them over, tell your story again and again. And the reason they do that is because every time they tell the story, when it's a lie, it changes. It keeps changing, it keeps changing, keeps changing. Is that what we see here? Are they being evasive? Are they tearing a, you know, fairy tales start with what? Once upon a time, way back then, in this place that nobody really knows about, in a time that we're not real familiar with, is that how they wrote? Not at all. They were very specific about times, date, and places. Listen to Luke. He says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Iturea in the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. I mean, can you be any more specific than that? It'd be like me saying, you know what I'm talking about. It was when, you know, Biden was president and Kamala Harris was vice president and DeSantis was uh, governor and, and so-and-so was mayor. And it'd be like being that specific. Does that sound like they're making things up? Not only were they very specific with their times and places, but remember, these letters, these gospels are circulating when people who experience those things are still alive. People who could confirm or deny the facts that are written in the accuracy of those books. And and the apostles themselves would actually appeal to this even from their opponents. Watch what Paul says to King Festus in Acts 26. He said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I speak freely knows these things, for I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention since this thing was not done in a corner. So Paul looks at the king and says, King, I, you know these things. These aren't hid from you. you, you you've heard of these things. I'm not making these things up. One, one final thing that we overlook sometime that really attests or testifies to the credibility of the writers, especially of the New Testament, is they were adamant about telling the truth, even when it made them look bad even when it made Jesus look bad. 
See, if you're making things up, we all know how we are, right? If you're writing a history or you're writing something down about somebody you really respect and you're in the story, you're, gonna, you're not going to write bad things. You're going to write it all good because that's what we do. But these men didn't do that. For example, Mark 3.21, when his family, talking about Jesus, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said he is out of his mind. His own family at one time thought he was crazy. And they went to get him and bring him home, and and they wrote about it because it was the truth. And they did other things. You remember when the the disciples are fighting for places in the kingdom? They wrote about that. You remember how they all fled after Jesus was arrested? They wrote about that. Peter's denial three times, Jesus' failure to work miracles in Galilee, his cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They wrote about that. And even their own ignorance, you remember after he rose from the dead, they said, are are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus, I'm sure he just shook his head because they still hadn't figured it out. But they wrote about that, even though it made them look bad. So when we open up the Bible and reread it, I'm convinced of its accuracy. I'm convinced of its historicity. I'm convinced of its reliability. It's not written by men who are telling a story. It's not written by men who are just making something up. It's written by men who want to tell the truth. And I believe that. Now, the third test we can look at is what's called the external evidence test. And it's the exact opposite of the internal. Are there things outside the Bible that would confirm or deny the accuracy, reliability or the historicity of the uh, document itself. Well, let's look at a few different areas, because there's, and again, we could stay here for hours uh, just talking about some of these things. Um, Let's talk about secular documents. Um, I want you to remember that Jesus was a, a relatively, in his day, an unimportant man. And he lived in probably the most unimportant place in the world, this little place called Judea. Not in Rome, not in Alexandria, not in any of these uh, great cities, but just in some backwater place in the Roman kingdom. And he's just an itinerant preacher. So we wouldn't expect to hear much about him, but there surprisingly is a fairly, fairly decent amount. I'll give you four examples. Uh, the first one is from the Jewish Antiquities, written by, written by a guy by the name of Josephus. Josephus was born right around shortly after Jesus died. Um, we do know that he was alive in, in 70 A.D. He was there in Jerusalem when the Romans raised it to the ground, and he wrote about it. And he wrote a book called The Jewish Antiquities, and you can buy a copy of it. I've got a copy of it at home. And he, he wrote a couple things in there that mentioned Jesus. I'll show them to you. The first one is here. He says, as therefore Ananus was of such a disposition, he thought he had now a good opportunity as Festus was now dead and Albinus was still on the road. So he assembled a council of judges and brought it before the brother of Jesus, the so-called Christ, whose name was James, together with some others. And having accused them as lawbreakers, he delivered them over to be stoned. So, so Josephus is telling us, yeah, there's this guy named Jesus. He, he said he was the Messiah. He's got a brother named James, and, and he's been arrested, and they're going to stone him. This is completely outside the Bible. He also wrote this in his book, The Jewish Antiquities. There was about this time Jesus, a wise man. 
He drew over to him many, both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct to this day. Uh, we also have a mention by a guy by the name of Cornelius Tacitus, uh, who was a Roman historian. He said this, Christians derive their name and origin from Christ, who in the reign of Tiberius had suffered death by the sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. And then Suetonius, who wrote the book Lives of the Caesars, said, Since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, which is Christ, Emperor Claudius expelled them from Rome. So we, we certainly don't expect any of these documents or books to say, yeah, Jesus is Lord or any of that. But they tell us there was a man uh, in history. There's a man named Jesus said he was the Christ. He's got a following. They're being, you know, they're making a lot of trouble for the empire. And uh, so we certainly have some secular referrals to him. Uh, one of the biggest things we need to look at when you want to know if the Bible is the word of God is that we need to look at prophecy. Because if the Bible is the word of God and God prophesy, if his prophets speak his message, then those are going to come true. Now, certainly there are prophecies that have not yet come true. We don't say they all have, but we would expect to look in the Bible and find prophecies that have come uh, true. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples from Ezekiel 26, 4 through 5. This is one that I've shared with you guys before. Uh, God uh, prophesies, uh, Ezekiel prophesies the word of God. And says, they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers. I will scrape her dust from her and make her, listen to the prophecy, I will make her like the top of a rock that shall be a place for the spreading of nets in the midst of the sea. For I have spoken it, says the Lord God. Now, when Ezekiel made this prophecy, Tyre was a huge city. I mean, think about New York of today. It was one of the most powerful cities. It's, uh, it's in modern-day, uh, it's off the, right on the coast of uh, modern-day Lebanon. And uh, three years after this prophecy is given, Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to the city. And the city was built right on the coast, and so the inhabitants of the city actually moved off the mainland out to an island. And they built a city out there and kind of refortified themselves and actually went on for several more uh, centuries. In fact, most people at that time would have said, well, the prophecy has failed. Yeah, they've been conquered and they had to move offshore to this island. But at the end of the day, they're not a rock. They're, they're, nobody's spreading their nets. So it went along like that till about 300 B.C. or so. And this guy named Alexander the Great comes along. And Alexander the Great takes the ruins, all the blocks and rocks and ruins from the city, and he builds a causeway out to the island. I mean, this is unbelievable. I mean, literally builds a causeway that he can take his troops across. And they go out there, and they besiege this city, and they take it. And it gets conquered. Oh, after that, it gets conquered again and again and again. And it just goes down, 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 down. And it's um, around the 12th century A.D., it finally gets to the point where it just doesn't exist anymore. This is a secular history book written in 1889 by a guy by the name of Philip Myers. And I want you to hear what he says about Tyre. He says, Tyre never regained the place she had previously held in the world. The larger part of the side of the once great city is now bare as the top of a rock, a place where the fishermen that still frequent the spot spread their nets to dry. 
exactly what God said would happen. One of the greatest uh, books in the Bible or the prophecies in the Bible uh, is the chapter of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, which contains 15 fulfilled prophecies of Christ. Uh, I'm going to read a little bit of this. I know you're all familiar with this chapter, and I'm just going to read a few verses. And when I read it, just, I mean, it's obvious, is it not, who it's talking to or talking about. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent. Now, you read that, and who's it talking about? I mean, it's so obvious it's talking about Jesus. In fact, it was so obvious that skeptics said there's no way that was written before Jesus died. Somebody added that in after he died. That's how obvious it is. It's so many fulfillments of prophecy. And for the longest time... The, the oldest copy we had of Isaiah was from 900 A.D. That was the oldest copy. So we, there was a big gap between when Jesus and died and, and the oldest copy we had. And so skeptics said, see, there ain't no way that, that was a prophecy. Somebody put that in there. Somebody added that in there after Jesus died because it's so obviously about him. And they said that until 1947. And in 1947, what I think is the greatest archaeological discovery in history was made uh, by a little shepherd boy. Uh, a goat went down into a cave, and he was throwing some rocks in there to try to get his goat to come out, and he heard some pottery break, and he took somebody back there, and they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls was a complete copy of the book of Isaiah. And there was two things about it. Number one, it matched what we have today virtually word for word. Virtually word for word. There was a few misspellings and translation things, but for the most part, it was exactly the same. That was the one important thing. The second important thing was that when they dated it, they dated it anywhere from 100 to 350 years before Jesus was even born. So the skeptics couldn't say anymore. Somebody added that in because they had a copy that was written before Jesus uh, ever came. So it is an incredible, incredible Discovery. One of my favorite things um, to, to, to delve into is archaeology. I just I love to watch YouTube videos about biblical archaeology. There's more and more discoveries being made. It's unbelievable what they're discovering out there today. I just want to give you a few of them from, uh, from the Bible. Uh, the Hittites. Um, in the Old Testament, the Bible mentions the Hittites, the, the, the nation, the civilization, over 50 times. Uh, for example, Genesis 23.7 says Abraham rose and bowed down to the Hittites. But for centuries, there was no evidence of them in archaeology. And so skeptics do what they always do. They point it at the Bible and say, well, the Bible just made that up. Um, and that was, again, until 1907. And in 1907, they actually found and excavated the capital city of the Hittite 
uh, uh, capital city of the Hittite Empire, which was named Hattusa. And they, that's a picture of it there that they excavated. They also found the Hittite uh, Empire mentioned in a treaty uh, with Ramses II, who was the uh, uh, king of uh, Egypt at the time. You, you see the same thing with King David. As most of you know, King David is probably one of, if not one of the most important uh, men in the Old Testament. God told him, he said, you know, I'm gonna, I promise you that your kin, your uh, your ancestors will never leave the throne of the kingdom. Of course, that's talking about Jesus who uh, traces his ancestry back uh, to King David. Um, but despite all of this in the Bible about King David, for years and years and years, they had no evidence that he even um, existed until 1993. In 1993, Dr. Abraham Baran and his team were uh, excavating at the base of, of Mount Hermon on the north part of Galilee, and they found this stone, and there's a picture of it. And on that stone, it said this, the king of Israel and the house of David. First, first things they'd ever found about him. And then in 2009, they found his palace in Jerusalem and excavated it. I mean, it's just incredible what they're finding out there. Uh, I, I, I think I talked about this one in one of my lessons not too long ago. Uh, for almost 2,000 years, Christians have accepted that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Now, why do we think that? Because Jesus said so. Paul said so. Um, for example, John 5, 46, Jesus said, If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. So Jesus said it, so we believe it. But skeptics, especially in the 1700s, they began to say, no, there's no way Moses wrote it because when he lived around 1400 B.C., they did not have any alphabet. They did not have a Hebrew or whatever type of alphabet it was. He could not have written the New Testament, or I'm sorry, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books. It must have been done a lot later. Until 1980, uh, a guy by the name of Adam Zertal excavated on Mount Ebal, he found uh, what's called Joshua's altar. Now, if you're not familiar with Joshua's altar, it's referred to in Joshua chapter 8 where it says Joshua built an altar to the Lord on Mount Ebal. And, and Mount Ebal, that's a picture of it. It's still there today. Uh, it's a place when, when, when the Israelites came into the land, there's a place called Shechem. And on the left is Mount Gerizim, and on the right is Mount Ebal. And, and, and basically Moses said, when you get there, I want you to put half the tribes on Mount Gerizim. I want you to put half the tribes on Mount Ebal. Mount Gerizim will represent the blessings of God. Mount Ebal will represent the curses. And Joshua went and built altars. And this archaeologist in 1980 found the altar that Joshua built. I mean, it's, it's incredible. Forty years go by, 40 years, and in 2022, this American archaeologist by the name of Scott Stripling, he thought, I wonder what would happen if I went out there and all the debris, you know, when they're excavating, they're just piling up dirt, right? So he took a bunch of sifters out there, and he just started sifting. And he found this little tiny tablet called a curse tablet, and it's made out of lead. It's not very big. It's made out of lead. And they dated the lead to somewhere between 1550 to 1200 B.C. And then in, inside of that, they had to use a special technology because they couldn't open it. But inside of that was this writing that they dated to 1400 to 1300 B.C. And what was really interesting is this is what it said. 
on the cursed on the cursed mountain on the altar that that Joshua built uh, on Mount Ebal. They found a little tablet, and on it was written, "Cursed, cursed, cursed, cursed by the God Yahweh." Scott Stripling says this basically shows that that anybody that says that they couldn't have written the the Pentateuch in that time frame is wrong because you can see they had an alphabet. So, again, every time the skeptics say something, you just wait long enough, wait long enough, and the Bible will prove itself true. We saw this was Pontius Pilate. As late as 1961, there had been no evidence that there ever was a man named Pontius Pilate. But then again, they did an excavation of Caesarea. Uh, they found an inscription that said, Tiberius Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea. Um, in the same way, other people in the Bible, I won't go through all of them, skeptics said they don't exist until they do, right? Um, even when they find discrepancies, if, they'll, if they just keep studying and keep digging, they'll find out the Bible was right. Let me give you an example of this. In 2 Kings 18, uh, king, uh, this guy named Sennacherib, who's king of Assyria, comes against Judea. And the king at the time was a guy by the name of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah decides to surrender. And Sennacherib says, well, you've got to pay me tribute. And it tells us in the Bible that Hezekiah paid him 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. Well, these archaeologists in the uh, 1800s actually found not... not Bible manuscripts, they actually found Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, they found his um, writings or his, you know, when they wrote down all the stuff, or his history, um, and it said 800 talents of silver. So the Bible said 300, the Assyrian writings said 800, and of course, you know what the skeptics do, right? Oh, see, <laughs> the Bible's wrong and he's right. And they kept digging. Well, as they kept digging, they found out that the standard of calculation was different for Assyria and Judah when it came to silver. Gold was the same, but silver was different. And they found out that 800 Assyrian talents equals 300 Jewish talents on the dot. So it was, the scripture was right down to the very number. A couple things and then I'll close. I want to remind you, and this is something that I just think is so incredible about the Bible. And the Bible doesn't take place in some far, far land that you and I can't go to. Now, I've never been to Israel. Others of you have been here. But the, thing, the places in the Bible, you can go there today. I mean, it's just incredible. It's not like we're it's some dreamland where they're just making things up. I'll give you a couple of examples. Acts 19.29, it says, When they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord. You remember that story? Uh, everybody's getting saved and nobody's buying the little idols anymore. So the people that make the idols, are, they caused a riot trying to get Paul and his companions thrown out of town. And they all rushed into that theater. Well, you, you can go there today. That same theater is, is right there. You can go visit it and walk in the same place where Paul walked. Or how about this one, John 9, 10 to 11. So they said to him, how were your eyes open? And he said, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and received my sight. That pool of Siloam, buried for literally for millennia, 
has been excavated and will be open to the public here very shortly. You'll be able to go to the place where that man washed his eyes and received his sight. We could go on and on and on and on. These aren't made-up places. These are real life, real people, and real places. Now listen, I don't believe the Bible needs corroborative evidence to verify it. I, I told somebody one time was trying to get me real interested in the finding Noah's Ark. And I just said, look, <laughs> if they find Noah's Ark, that'll be cool. But it ain't going to change me none at all if they do or they don't. I, I'm not believing the Bible because they find Noah's Ark. That's got, it's just, you know, so I'm kind of that way. I believe the Bible. If they find something that verifies it, great. I don't have a problem with that. That's cool. But it doesn't change anything if they don't. But here's what I want you to know. There has never been one scientific or archaeological find that has ever disproven a single word of Scripture. Not one. There's been tons of them that have verified. And, and, and I'm not saying that everything in the Bible has been verified. What I'm telling you is they've never found one thing to disprove what's in the Bible. Not one. And as time goes on, they're just going to find more and more and more and more. I close with this. One of the most important things to me that I see, we, we, a while ago we looked inside the Bible and we saw men, the apostles, who were writing as if they're telling the truth. But how did they live? Did they live like they were telling the truth? Tradition tells us that 11 out of the 12 apostles, um, not including John, 11 out of the 12 died terrible deaths. Peter crucified, Andrew crucified, Matthew killed by the sword, John, again, he's the only one that died a natural death, James, the son of Alphaeus, crucified, Philip, crucified, Simon, crucified, Thaddeus, killed by arrows, James, the brother of Jesus, stoned to death, Thomas, thrust through with a spear, Bartholomew, crucified, James, the son of Zebedee, killed with a sword, 11 out of the 12 were martyred because they believed that they had seen the resurrected Jesus. They believed that. Are you with me? They believed it enough to die. Now, you may say to me, well, now, wait a minute. What does that prove? A lot of people die for for a lie. And And by the way, that's true. Every suicide bomber that blows himself up believes they're going to heaven. They believe that. But see, the difference is those men believe a lie to be true. But if the resurrection of Jesus was a lie, the apostles knew it. They knew it was a lie. So do we, we really think that those men suffered torture? Many of them dying on the cross in the same way that Jesus died, that they would give their lives all the while knowing that they were dying for something that wasn't true? I mean, I don't know about you, but that is beyond belief. Not only did they write in that book what, in a way that, I mean, it just comes off the page to me that they're telling the truth. But then they walked out and they lived a life that said, I believe. I've seen him. I've touched him. I've put my finger in his hands. I know he's alive. And they live that, and I believe it. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word we thank you for, we don't need evidence, God, we really don't. But God, thank you that we're not without evidence. 
that, God, if we'll just open our eyes and open our mind and open our hearts, we can see it just jump off the page to us that what these men, inspired by your Spirit, wrote those many years ago was true then, it's been true ever since, and it's true today. God, help us to believe the way they believed. Help us to walk the way they walk. Help us to be lovers of truth the way that they were lovers of truth. And God, in the, and, I, and if we'll do that, I know, I know the same way they rock the world will rock our world. It might be this little area of Walker County. It might be our family or whatever the case may be. But God, if we really walk and live the way believing in, the, in such that you are the resurrected Lord, people cannot help but be impacted by that. Help us to be those kind of people. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this message from River of Life. If this message has touched you today, or if you need someone to pray with, please contact us at 850-926-1200 or email us at info at rolcrawfordville.com. We also want to encourage you to visit us this Sunday morning at 1030 a.m. in Crawfordville. Please visit us online at rolcrawfordville.com for more information and directions.